of Philippians. Now, it's a good thing on some levels that Jim's not here because I can say this about him behind his back. Uh, we, I do not know if you realize how fortunate we are to have somebody who knows the works of Paul as well as our pastor does. He is truly highly educated and has had experience and studied around with a number of different people. And he knows the Pauline corpus is a big fancy word for it, but the body of work that Paul, the apostle, left for us. And I am excited about Philippians. I guarantee you I will learn some things in this journey. There's no doubt. But we have some goals for you. Can you pop those up there for me, Miss Wendy? Oh, well, first here's that. No, go back to that picture because I love that. This says citizenship, the sacrifice of generosity. We're going to study citizenship as one of the key elements that comes out in the book of Philippians. The letter is what it was. Book is kind of a funny word. We use that as a Bible distinction. But it was a friendship letter that Paul wrote to a church that actually had traction and was a great church for hundreds of years. And uh, what it does is it ties us into the idea of generosity that we just studied. Citizenship brings with it some new ideas. Uh, I hope that that will happen for you. Pop those goals up there for me, Miss Wendy. First of all, what I'd like to do today is kind of put an appetizer out for the book of Philippians, the letter to, to Philippi. Uh, we're not even going to crack it open today. We're going to look at Acts chapter 16, where we have a narrative that actually moves along and tells us about how it came to be, the whole church in Philippi. So that's part of our goal today. Also, I'd like to reconsider citizenship. We're going to talk about that a good bit today. We'll hardly even crack open the idea of partnership, but that's a goal for along on our journey as we're moving through the book. And then, believe it or not, we're preparing for Christmas. <laughs> Now, you say, oh, come on, give me a break. It's not even Halloween yet. I understand that. But actually, the thinking moves forward because this book gives us one of the most wonderful hymns in the new church, the early church, that talked about the emptying of Christ, the choices that he made when he came here to earth for us. It literally sets up the advent perfectly. So that's part of why we went there. And I'm excited, as I hope you are, we went through Ephesians last year with Jim. Anytime Jim's going to teach a book that Paul wrote, you should be there. That's what I'll say for sure. Let's go to the next one there, Miss Wendy. Okay, so here's the deal. We're going to start off here to look at the location of Philippi. Now, you may say, who even cares? I'm not a geography person. I don't give a rip. I want to give you a little bit of insight as to the commitment that it took for this church to happen. The distance geographically between the city of Jerusalem and the city of Philippi is 1,500 miles. Now, you think about that in terms of the ancient world, and it adds a different significance to what is going on. Think of the complications of that. Think of the commitment that that took. And we're going to look today, we're going to, this is what we're going to spend our time in today, is in the narrative of Acts. We have this fascinating thing with these few letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, the Corinthian letters, Thessalonians, the Roman letters, a uh, letter to Rome, where we have some setup information in the story that Luke laid out for us of the historical process of the church. And then we get to go read the letter that Paul wrote to those churches. And he didn't write one, well, let's say it this way, we don't have in our scripture 
letters to every one of the churches that he started. He num wrote, started a number of churches that are not included. There may be even some churches he'd started in cities that weren't included in the book of Acts as well. So we don't even know the total number. We have no idea. But Philippians is in there. Let's put that next slide up of the map. So here's what you do. This is why I'm carrying this crazy thing around. Because this is, how fun is this? I mean, only like in the 21st century, right? So down here, all the way down here is Jerusalem. This is where Jesus' ministry was. Jesus never left this general vicinity right here. Never walked outside of that. And yet within a very brief period of time, within for sure a couple hundred years, the church of Jesus Christ had spread through the known world. It's a pretty big deal. So the church then went up here to Antioch. Antioch, this is Syrian Antioch. You'll see there's another Antioch over here in this state. They get confused sometimes, even in the narratives and the story. But this is the, the greatest first church that was built. And actually, Paul leaves there, goes there as a first missionary, leaving from this church in Antioch. Um, Irenaeus, one of the great leaders of the church, was the bishop in this area. And this was a very strong place where the church was for a long time. This is actually the city that Paul was born in and raised in. They're not super far from each other up around here. And so he was very familiar with these people. They would have gotten along perfectly. But then he left on his second journey with Silas after he had tried to communicate with Barnabas and take Barnabas to go with him. He instead, they didn't get along on how that should look. There was conflict over a guy named Mark. I don't know. There's always conflict over a guy named Mark. I don't know why that is. But anyways, the, um, they decided then Paul left and went with Silas and others to go back into the churches because he had been down here in Jerusalem. We're going to talk about that briefly because they were trying to figure out some things about what it meant for Gentiles, non-Jews, to become Christians. What did that look like? in the way of what that should be, what requirements should be, how they should worship, a number of different things. But he made his way across here. He gets to this town, and he meets and picks up a guy named Timothy, who will sound very familiar, because Timothy was actually spoken of well. We'll see here about people even in this town. And he takes him with. Then he moves across. He tries to go down into this area. Ephesus sounds very familiar, I'm sure to you. There were a number of churches in this area. This will tell us in the narrative that he couldn't go there. He then tried to go up into Bithynia, and he couldn't go there either. And then he has a vision. We'll read about it. Where he ends up going all the way over here and then going across over here into Macedonia. Now, right here, this little straits are, this is where Constantinople was and all the kind of the great, because this whole area that's now Turkey, all of this out here was Asia, right? This down here is Africa, and this is Europe. So he's getting up onto the north part of the Greece Peninsula right here. This is the first town, Philippi, he goes in Neapolis quickly, and then Philippi, the first town that he goes into in a whole continent, and that happens on this journey. Put up the next slide there, Miss Wendy. So here was Paul's mission. He was bringing hope from Jerusalem. They had tried to figure out, now here's the deal. This is tough. This is difficult. You've got a bunch of former Jews 
who are now following a Jewish rabbi, Jesus Christ, in his way of redemption. And everything starts from Judaism. Without Israel, there is no Christianity. But now they're carrying it out from Israel, as I said, hundreds and hundreds of miles away, where there was very little cross-pollination, so to speak, and they're finding they're encountering Jews that are becoming Christians, but they're also encountering Roman citizens or just regular Greeks, others who are Gentiles, non-Jews, and they're bringing them into the church, and they're trying to figure this out. Because what did they need to do to become Christians? Did they be, need to be full-on Jews to be Christians? That's actually an excellent question when you think about it. Did they need to convert to Judaism? And what that would look like would be first and hardest for all men in the room. They would need to be circumcised. That was a critical element. Second of all, they would need to commit to worshiping on the Sabbath and following the Sabbath laws. Third of all, they would need to commit to the halakha, the, the living out of all of the dietary restrictions and all of the different things that the Jews did and did not do that were related to following the Torah. And the question was, how much do we ask these Gentiles to become like us as Jews? It's an excellent question and really important because there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. And in fact, people were coming from Israel following Paul as he went and started these different churches and going and teaching you must become a Jew at this level, or you are not a believer, you are not a follower, you will go to hell, you are not a Christian. They were following Paul around. So Paul came back to Jerusalem to get some clarity on the issue. And they talked as apostles. It was the first great gathering of the apostles to decide an issue, and they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to say that when it comes to the issues that are related to idol worship, in the pagan world. So eating the meat that has been idol worshipped, worshipped by sacrificing that meat, uh, drinking blood that was related to that, um, having the animals who had been strangled and offered in different ways, and sexual immorality that was related to the worship process of these pagan gods. We're going to tell those Christians, do not do that, okay? But here's the good news. You do not have to be circumcised. Everybody went, whoo, praise Jesus for that. And second of all, you do not have to follow Sabbath. In fact, many of the gatherings were starting to happen on Sunday instead of the Sabbath. It wasn't a lock-in yet, but it was starting to go that way. And third of all, you don't have to follow all the other dietary restrictions and all the other stuff attached to Judaism. If you stop and think about it, it was a huge concession on the part of the Jewish Christians and the apostles to say, this is really all you have to do. So I say that he was bringing hope from Jerusalem because it's really not that bad. The hardest part would be their neighbors would know these people are no longer worshiping our pagan pantheon here whether that is gods that we borrowed from the Greeks and everybody else like Zeus and Diana and whoever else, or they're also not worshiping the emperor of Rome. All through this area, through Turkey, modern Turkey, modern Greece, 
there was a great deal of imperial worship. They literally had decided Rome had given us the world as we know it. They have given us peace. They have given us economy. They have given us safety. They have built roads. They have done all these other number of things. Does that, by the way, sound like the same benefits we have today? Yes. Many of the same benefits of being a Roman citizen were the benefits that we reap today. And so they literally said, well, you know who really is the god of the planet is the emperor. Now, the early emperor said, no, that's crazy. You can worship the god pool that we have who has empowered Rome to give the, all of these things to the world. We're fine with that. As you go a couple emperors in, though, it gets worse, and several of them start full-on accepting the worship, especially Nero. Nero was the first one that jumped in with all feet and hands and said, I actually am the god of the universe. Uh, worship me. And he erected a statue that was literally, you might have seen if you get the National Geographic, there's actually, a, last month there was a big article on Nero. He built a metal statue that was almost the size of the top of, of the Statue of Liberty. And it was a, a, a huge statue of him right in Rome where the Colosseum is right now. And it, it was him, Nero, all of the features of Nero, and he had all of the trappings of being the god you know, Zeus, and he was like, oh, yeah, it's me. So uh, that happened. Now, what happened is that these people, now these Christians, would be known because they're not partaking in the worship festivals and everything else in their neighborhoods. That would be known. In our culture, that'd be no big deal, right? We have freedom of religion, so if somebody practices another religion and, and they're our neighbor, we go, well, okay, you know, that's fine. In their culture... If you weren't making the gods happy that were our gods, you are hurting our community. You're literally being counterproductive for us. It's a big deal. So it's a cost, but not full Judaism. He also is taking the gospel into a brand new territory as a mission, and he's bringing honor to these Christians. We'll read about that in just a second. Flip to that next one, Miss Wendy. Let me see what I said there. What's the next? Oh, his message of citizenship. Turn with me to Acts 16. We'll get into citizenship in just a minute. If you have a Bible or in front of you, there's some Bibles there or in the chairs somewhere around you in the general vicinity. I think it's page 784 in the back section in that Bible. That's what I believe I remember it to be. And uh, we'll read this. This, again, is a story that is a flow-along historical narrative that Luke is writing to say, this is how we got here, where we are. And as I mentioned, they're coming up all the way through, and here they come to Derby and to Lystra, and they pick up Timothy. A disciple named Timothy lived there. Now listen to the construct of Timothy, Timothy's background. His mother was a Jew and a Christian. But his father was a Greek, and that combined with the end of verse 3, all of the people around there knew that his father was a Greek. It's pretty clear his father was an unbelieving Roman citizen, Greek philosophy-embracing pagan worshiper, okay? That's who his dad was. But his mom was a Jew, his grandmother was as well, and he had been raised in the scripture. We learned that from the, the letters to Timothy. 
And the brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him, so Paul wanted to bring him along on the journey. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Wait a second, I thought you just said they didn't need to be circumcised. Well, they didn't need to be. So what is this? Is this Paul deciding, oh, I guess I'm going to sidetrack? No. This is Paul doing what all of us need to do. Now, you may be asking yourself, why are we even going to go into all this stuff about Philippi and Rome? Who gives a rip? That was 2,000 years ago. I'll tell you why this matters. These Christians were trying to figure out how to navigate being in a broader culture that was not friendly to them. Now, whether you are aware of this or not, that's you. If you are a Christian living in our culture right now in the United States, we are no longer in a place that is friendly towards and embraces Christianity. The ethical system, the morality, the beliefs, the con nothing. We are no longer in that place. We are the same as these people in Philippi and as these early Christians trying to learn how to navigate in a world that is not friendly towards us. And I want to tell you this. This was the construct in Rome for hundreds of years, almost 400 years. If you believe for some reason that we're owed a culture that is friendly towards us, you have not been paying attention to the history of Christianity. God did not put an emperor on the Caesar position in Rome who came in, not at this point, who came in and said, wow, that Jesus guy, that Jew from the corner of wherever, who even cares about that place, in fact, that whole area stinks over there, that Jew who was treated like worse than the worst criminals possible, okay, not a credible guy, Jesus, in the Roman Empire. He was treated like a murderous slave. He was flogged like one and hung and crucified on a cross. One of the benefits of being a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified on a cross. You also could not be flogged. And you know what I mean by flogging, which was more than just beating with canes. It was the cat of nine tails that would rip chunks of flesh out of your back. You could not be flogged and you could not be crucified as a Roman citizen. So why would the Caesar say, hey, that Jesus, that sounds like a pretty plausible deal to me. You know what it took? It took 400 years of the church navigating within a people group that did not appreciate them, like them, love them, or even care about them on any level. Until in the mid-300s, Constantine finally says, huh, there's something about this thing. But it took hundreds of years. So you are in the same spot that these guys were in. Paul circumcised Timothy because he said, we do have some friendship with some of the Jews who have become believers, and rather than make more trouble in this scenario, since Timothy is going to be a leader with me and a key member of my party, I am going to circumcise Timothy. So we just remove that barrier. It's not a big deal. Maybe we could learn something. 
As they traveled from town to town, verse 4, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. It's good news. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. We looked at that. Having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to. There's several whole state regions that God has said to them, I do not want you to take the gospel there. Some of them had heard it before. Some of them had not. Why? You'll have to ask God. I can't answer that one. It's just what happened. The Spirit said, it's time for you to go somewhere else. So during the night, Paul had a vision, verse 9, of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. This is a plea. This is a beg. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once. There, without any fanfare or announcement at all, Luke joins the party, by the way. Prior to every verse prior to that, Luke is writing about it in third person because he wasn't there. Now he's with. We got ready to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And from Troas, by kind of the famous city of Troy there in that area, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, a big uh, island out in the Aegean Sea. And the next day on to Neapolis, from there we traveled to Philippi. No information about Neapolis at all. Did they try to preach? Did they stop and talk to some people? Did they literally go, man, these guys have bad nachos. We are not even staying here. I don't even know what happened there. But interestingly, Neapolis comes up and goes right on by. We never hear about them again. And they are just a couple of miles from Philippi. But they move on. A Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. It won't take a bunch of time here, but I do want you to get a picture in your mind of who these people were. A hundred years before Christ, when Julius Caesar was uh, assassinated. A couple of guys, Brutus and Cassius, you've heard of et tu Brutus. Brutus and Cassius went into league together, and Octavian and Mark Antony went into league together, and it started one of the great civil wars in Roman history. Mark Antony and Octavian, Octavian was the single greatest, he becomes Caesar Augustus, he was the single greatest Caesar in their history, without any question. But they conquered Brutus and Cassius. Augustus was smart enough to say, you know what, I, we don't want to completely want to make enemies of those guys. So he made arrangements for their men to have places in Italy where they could lead, and I'm talking the generals, the key leaders in the military. Not long after that, in the 30s or so, B.C., Octavian and Mark Antony go to war against each other. Now, they had been friends in the first civil war. Now, in the second civil war, they're, what they both want to do is be Caesar, okay? And they can't both be Caesar. So they start fighting. Augustus had learned in the first time, Octavian had learned in the first time, this is a good thing to do. When he conquered Mark Antony, he took Mark Antony's leaders... He didn't leave them in Italy where the leaders of Brutus and Cassius had been. He transplanted them to Philippi. He took them over to the Grecian Peninsula, found some really nice ground, 
where they could grow a lot of grapes and sit around and, and grow vineyards and olive uh, trees and have a really nice life. And they became the Roman colony there. If there had been any Jews there prior to this, with all of these Roman military the guys that are all now, basically they're retired, they ran them all out. We don't know exactly what happened, but there's no evidence that there's hardly any Jews in the area at all, if any. And it's a military retirement community, so it'd be like going to like San Antonio or something like that, right? Colorado Springs. Because this is the nature of the people that are there. This is the town that Paul comes into. They're Roman citizens. They have some capacity and wealth. At the same time, they're not friendly to Jews, and we're going to find that out here in a minute. On the Sabbath, verse 13, verse 13, on the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. They obviously do not find a synagogue. They, it took only 10 to 12 adult males who are Jewish to unify together to form a synagogue. There's not even that many in this town, apparently. So if they couldn't have a synagogue, what they were told to do was to go to a place where there was fresh, flowing water and pray and gather there. And that's what was going on. There are people who are gathered there, but they're not just people. He, we sat down and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of them listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira is quite a ways away. Lydia apparently is gathered with, it sounds like, only other women. Now, for a Jewish rabbi Pharisee with a group of Jewish men to walk up to a group of Gentile women and engage them in conversation, I can't even explain to you how scandalous this is, that Paul does this. But what must have dawned on them is these women are God-fearers at some level, and they, I don't know, but they're here to pray the way the Jews would have gathered, but I don't even know if there's any Jews here. There's no evidence of that. This is amazing that Paul does this, takes the time. But then Lydia was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and you can almost see this happening. As she has been Believing in the word, the one true living God of Israel, but not sure how all of this works. And then this Jewish rabbi so shows up, right, and can explain things. And he doesn't tell her about Moses. He tells her about Jesus. I mean, this is, again, you can't even hardly get your mind around what this would look like in their culture. And she embraces, and when she and the members of her household, listen to these descriptions, her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. She persuaded us, and she's the one offering the hospitality. This woman, Lydia, is, as a Roman citizen, woman, a very important person. She's bringing purple cloth to sell to the retired, rich military guys because they all want to be important. And she's worshiping God, and she hears Paul, and she says, that is, I want in on that. Again, now, she convinces this group of men to go to her home in a 
Gentile home, I, there's almost no way I can explain to you how impossible that this would have been, except that they had just been at this conference in Jerusalem. And they said, you know what? The Holy Spirit is playing out. You remember the story of Cornelius? Cornelius? Remember the story in Samaria? Remember Philip with the guy from Ethiopia? Remember all these stories? God is apparently bringing in the Gentiles in some way. It's legitimate. If we just tell them about not worshiping idols and tell them about the one true living God and Jesus Christ and they're willing to follow, we need to embrace them. This is a huge deal. It's also a huge deal that Luke writes down that the first convert is a woman. I can't even explain that, how big of a deal that is. If you were making up Christianity and you walked into this entire continent of Europe for the first time and the first convert is a woman, you just wouldn't tell anybody is what you would do in their culture. What Paul is doing in a fascinating way, Luke is, is in on it, and we'll see it play out as this plays forward into the book of Philippians, is he's putting an incredible value on gender that has not been valued. He is uh, unbelievable. The comments that he makes in chapter 4 of Philippians when he says to Yodia and Syntyche, he refers to them as co-equals, as apostles in the work of the gospel. He just put him on the list with James and Peter. This is a big deal. As Paul is talking about partnership in a different way. We won't have any time to unpack this today. But I need you to know that this is a critical juncture in the history of the church. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. And this girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, get a load of this. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. This girl, this young girl, gets the information from the demon as to what's going on. This is amazing. She kept us up for many days, and finally Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. Once again, Paul does not see her as just some worthless slave girl. He literally says, and this is a risk, but he says, I'm going to, whatever happens with these guys who have been making money from her, I cannot take this anymore. And he turns around and offers her healing. Again, if you were making this up, the second person who encounters Jesus Christ would not be a slave girl. And when the owners of the slave girl realize, here it comes, it's going to hit the fan, that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities, brought them before the magistrates and, magistrates and said, these men are Jews. Listen to the anti-Semitism in this, and I mean it is... Thick enough you can cut it. These men are Jews and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And it was such a big deal that the crowd joins in and attack Paul and Silas. Not because of the slave girl, they didn't care about that, but because these Jews, who do these Jews think they are? They don't even belong here in the first place, much less coming here and messing with what's going on around here. 
So the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten after they had been severely flogged. Oops. Paul and Silas, both Roman citizens. That should have never happened. They were thrown into prison. Oops. Paul and Silas, both Roman citizens, no due process. One of the benefits of being a Roman citizen is you get legal process. Nothing. They're thrown into prison. The jailer's commanded to guard them carefully. So he treats them like garbage, basically. Upon receiving such orders, he puts them in the inner cell, fasten their feet in the stocks. This is not a nice jail like Breckenridge here. This is a pit. And now just ask yourself a question. What would you do in response to that scenario? Okay, we came here. We're following the lead of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit told us to come over here to these people in Macedonia. We come in. We meet a bunch of women. Okay, that's okay. We can come to terms with it. Then we're walking around. This girl is telling the truth about us, but it, we cannot possibly let her remain in the slavery that she is in on two levels, spiritually and physically. And so we release her. And look what we get in response. Like my grandma used to say, no good deed goes unpunished, right? They end up in jail for this. But look what they do. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening. I bet they were listening. Shut up, dude, we're trying to sleep. Okay. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Now, the two other times that people had been released from prison, an angel went in and actually opened the locks, right? This case, a physical event happens, which is far broader reaching in its specter. Think about it. Everybody in town knows what's going on right now, is this earthquake. That was common, but what happens next is not common. And on once, all the prison doors flew open and all the chains came off. That doesn't happen in your average earthquake. And the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. As a retired military guy who's running this jail, it, in a shame and, and uh, honor culture, if he lets prisoners escape from his jail, they will shame his family for generations and kill him. Possibly this is worthy of death. It would not be worthy of the cross, but definitely death. So what they could do is take their own life to save some of their honor, and that's what he is about to do. But Paul says to him, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Why the other guys took off, we have no idea. The jailer called for lights, and his other jailers came in, and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Is this because the earth is still shaking? Probably not. Is this because they're still there? Maybe. More likely, he's added everything up. I've watched these guys walking around town. This girl was, was doing something, and they were able to release her from the demon. That's a big deal. I see that. Also, they have the capacity to sit in here and respond unlike any other prisoner I've ever had here before. Most of the guys I put in here do not sit around, praise God, and sing songs. And now, the walls shake, their chains fall off, the, the bars open up, and nobody, including them, nobody leaves the prison. He comes to the conclusion in his pagan mind, these guys are gods. That's just reasonable in his mind. So he says to them, what must I do to be saved? Where did he get that line? Do you remember what the, what the girl was saying walking around? 
These are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She was saying that out loud. He had heard this line. He doesn't make this line up. So he says, what should I do to be saved? And they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And this will be the common thing that happens in Roman culture. You being the patristic leader, your entire household will come with you. Okay? And who's this Lord Jesus? He doesn't know. He doesn't know anything about what they're talking about. This is, by the way, not the typical answer. If you had the capacity to have just been freed from, and everything else that has gone in this jail, these guys would have said, bring me some wine and some women. And the jailer would have said, you betcha. <laughs> That's what would have happened. No, this guy says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then you'll be saved. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. They taught him to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed them, and immediately he and his family were baptized. So Paul instructed them. Then they're baptized. They go through a, a behavior that is a commitment behavior. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. That meal, when we celebrate communion here in a minute, very likely wrapped up in that phrase was a communion celebration, a meal, a love feast. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. You know the rest of the story, which I don't have time to pack, unpack for you. But the idea is this. In the idea of citizenship, what happens next is really important. Paul, then, they, they're like, oh, they're going to let him go and let him leave town. And Paul says, uh, you know, I'm a Roman citizen, and you have done at least two things desperately wrong in this system. And they respond, they realize we're in big trouble. We could lose our jobs at least, these political leaders, the magistrates. And so Paul says, here's the deal. I am just wanting to be escorted out of town. I'll be happy to leave. Before he left, he went to Lydia's house, spent time encouraging them, and then he moves on his way to Thessalonica, off that direction. One of the things that is super important is that Paul gives Roman citizen educated capacity, credibility to these believers before he leaves that town. Paul is not doing that because he's so interested in his own well-being. He has nothing to gain from that. He's already gone through prison and been flogged. The, what he gains is he realizes citizenship has got a different posture to it. And I will propose, we'll see this as we go through. First of all, Paul kept talking to them about this, the benefit of being a citizen of the kingdom of God, following Jesus, this leader from the corner of the world that no Caesar would ever even give the time of day. That citizenship is worth it. We'll hear it. Paul is sitting in his jail in Rome writing the letter to Philippi, and he's sketching down, and he's like, huh, what, what image should I use? He grabs citizenship as the best picture to say, this is what this looks like now to be a member of God's family. You're a citizen of a new place. Paul specifically says it. Our citizenship is not here on earth. It is in heaven. Second of all, he says, the citizenship that you have that's even secondary of importance is to each other. How he passed on the importance, the credibility, the love, the grace, the courage, everything else to each other. This is what he was doing as he was going through church to church and bringing the words from Jerusalem to say, 
We're citizens together, unified of a new kind. It's what you're doing right here today. It's what we need to do as Christians in the United States. Not to push all of them away, but to actually learn how to navigate so that we're attractive. And last is empire citizenship. There's almost no way that I can explain to you how radical this story is between the interplay with the women, with the Gentiles, with the singing in the jail cell, with the everything else, with the Paul did not play his citizenship card when he could have before he was ever flogged. He waited until it was strategically beneficial for the Christians afterward. And so the question is this. You're citizens of America. You have some of the greatest benefits as a citizen that has ever happened in all of human history. Where does it play on, in your grand spectrum there? Is it the most important thing for you? Would you flip it over? I'm, first of all, a citizen of the United States. And then secondary, a citizen of the kingdom of God. Or maybe secondary, the citizen of another. Paul had a strategic plan in mind. And by the way, it changed all of Asia. It changed all of Europe. It changed all of Africa. It changed everywhere. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the uh, message, for the value that Paul expressed, for the understanding that he had for the uh, capacity to flex, but also to bring courage and life. And uh, thank you for those first converts who became core people in one of the greatest churches in the ancient Near East. Thank you for them. Um, thank you for the, the stories, the narratives that give us so many details that we can embrace and move into today as Americans that are so much like what we experience. Um, give us your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.